Amen. Acts chapter 14, page 1271. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, you can just grab that hardback Bible out of the pew in front of you. Turn to 1271. You'll find the 14th chapter of Acts as we're working through the book of Acts that teaches us about the beginning, the genesis of the church and how the church began. When we get to Acts 14, last week we sort of shifted from Peter's ministry to Paul's ministry. And so now we are in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. Him and Barnabas are, uh, have embarked on their first journey. And we are going to be able to jump in and see what God would have us to uh, learn from their experiences as they go to Iconium. So let's pray together and ask God to help us as we learn. Father, we come before you and we declare that your word is relevant and perfect, suitable for every situation. Lord, so many times we don't understand what we need to know. But it's through your word that you instruct us in ways we weren't even aware of. And Lord, no doubt today you have something to say to each of us here. It's no mistake that we're here. You knew that this moment in our lives would be right now. And so, Lord, help us to realize the potential of what your word might do in our lives, to have hearts open to receive, that we might push away all distractions, focus on you and you alone, and that you might do in us what only you can do. So, Lord, we ask for ears to hear as we humbly approach you through your word. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 14. Let's read the first seven verses. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. And they so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against them. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands." But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Now, I want you to notice that... Verse 2 says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their, mind, their minds against the brethren. And then the response in verse 3, Therefore, they stay there a long time. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's just in the matter-of-factness of the book of Acts that's so convicting to my heart as I realize it over and over again. We see the harder things get, uh, the more God prevails and the more he uses his people and how uh, his mouthpiece here the apostle Paul and Barnabas they're not they're not deterred and at all they're not swayed by anything they're so resolute and resolved they know what matters most above all things so they go to Lystra and Derby which are just outside of Iconium and so they're sort of making their way they're, they're moving sort of further and further out into the wilderness. They'll eventually end up in Derby, which is all the way sort of at the, the end of a dusty road, if you will. But when they get there, Paul's going to engage these people, which are Greek-speaking Gentiles with no real background in the Old Testament. So you need to keep that in mind, how Paul is continually shifting his message based on the context that he's in. He doesn't say the same thing to everybody. He says what they can understand in a way in which they can understand it. And it's so important for us to see this. So look, look at verse 8. So in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a crippled man from his mother's womb who had never walked. Now this man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he leaped and began walking. Now, 
Again, what you'll notice is there's a certain pattern here. The same pattern was shown us in the first seven verses, that there were signs and wonders that God used during this time to validate his messengers and the message. And so again, we see they go to a new place, and there's an opportunity for a miracle to validate the message and the messengers. And so we don't need those validations now because we have the Word of God. But these are people who, this is all brand new to them. And so this healing, it's going to obviously capture everyone's attention. Because everyone knows this man who's been crippled since birth. And they also know that this is new and that this is, the apostles know this is a dangerous situation. Because everywhere they go, they face persecution. They face danger. Now, we also face danger when we read texts like this because how do we respond to what God's doing here in the Scripture? How do we respond when we read something like a man who was crippled from his mother's womb then jumps up and starts walking? See, as Westerners, we have this proficiency at explaining away things that make us uncomfortable or things that we don't normally see or experience. We just kind of push them to the side. You know, I, I want you to know that I keep reminding you through the book of Acts that I'm never going to be the guy that stands up here and tells you Jesus used to do some really awesome stuff and we're just going to talk about what he used to do. I'm not going to ever be that guy. I'm going to be the guy who's going to stand up here and tell you that God is an awesome God, and He can do whatever He wants to do. And we need to uh, realize that, you know, when somebody says, you know, God can't do things He used to do, that's a very dangerous and incorrect place to be. You know, I want us to know that God is an absolutely sovereign God, and that as we just sang, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The same. And so, it doesn't mean that He uses us the same way, or that, but He's the same. That's the key. He's the same. And so what we want to do is we want to approach situations where maybe the only hope we have is a miracle. We want to approach those situations, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand next to your hospital bed, just like I did this past week, and I'm going to pray for somebody who's chronically ill and it seemingly at the end of their life, and I'm going to pray for God to do exceedingly abundantly above that which I can ask or think. That's what I'm going to pray for Him to do. And then I'm going to trust Him, and I'm going to declare in advance, God, our trust is in You, and whatever You determine, we're going to receive with joy and gladness. But we're going to ask God, because we're going to make sure that God knows, and I want you to know that we believe that God can do whatever God wants to do. We want to tell the Lord in our prayer time. We want to say, Lord, you're bigger and better and stronger and smarter than we'll ever be. And so we don't know, but you do. And so we seek you. We seek you for whatever it is that you have for us. But we know there's no bounds or limitations on you. So that's one danger when we read a text like this. But then the other danger of reading a text like this, especially when there's a miracle connected to healing. You know, that can become a problem. It can become a problem for some of you in this room. It's a problem already because whenever we encounter a text like this, you get a little edgy because somebody you dearly loved needed a miracle and didn't receive one. And maybe even worse than that, you were in a situation or a scenario where some, I'll try to be nice, person told you that the reason why you or your loved one didn't receive a miracle was because you didn't have enough faith. And unfortunately, that's a ditch we can fall into. And I know that there's a contingency of you in this room that have been impacted by that sort of false theology in your past before you got here. And it's hard to shake that. And so whenever there's a sickness or a deficiency or some need, your heart wants to associate that with some sort of guilt and shame that you, if you had enough faith, that you wouldn't be in that situation. Well, the reality is from just the most 
surface reading of the Bible, clearly God does not heal everybody. Clearly. And that the most faithful people in Scripture oftentimes suffered the greatest. Correct? And so it's an utterly absurd thing, but uh, it's a malicious and horrible false doctrine that plagues people, and its root is satanic for sure. So God uses this miraculous act, and we want to walk into this with a right understanding of what's happening, and we want to realize that God uses this to get the attention of everybody. Here's his, his two ambassadors have walked into this place, and so this miracle now has the attention of everybody around. So we get to see how these people respond. Look at verse 11. Now when they saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in a Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Verse 13. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands. So they bring these oxen with flowers around their necks to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Ooh. So let's just pause for a second. First of all, what you got to understand is that notice how the text tells us that all of this chaos about Zeus and Hermes is taking place in Lyconian language, right? There's for a reason. Because who in this situation does not speak that language? That would be Paul and Barnabas. So initially they're confused by what's going on. So these people think that they're gods. This is based on some very strange um, mythological story that had permeated about Zeus and Hermes had come to a town and they, were, they had disguised themselves and nobody helped them or reached out to them or took them in their homes. And then there was these two people. One's name was Philemon. The other one, his wife's name was Bacchus. These two people took them into their home and fed them and cared for them and basically treated them like the Good Samaritan treated them. And so then the gods uh, eradicated everyone else and then elevated these two people into this special prominent place. And so it was sort of this mythological story. So when these two guys come wandering in and then one heals one, well, they go into panic mode and start thinking that they're Zeus and Hermes and they're going to worship them. Now, you know this is not going to go well at all. And here comes the priest from, you can tell how rooted these people are in idolatry because they've got temples to Zeus and, and Hermes and all sorts of craziness going on, right? So look at their response in verse 14. So when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, so that means when they figured out what was going on, they tore their clothes clothes and ran in among the multitude. So here's the people are sort of stirred up into a frenzy. And they're about to have this big sort of celebration sacrifice thing. Paul and Barnabas are like, wait a minute, you think we're what? And so they start tearing their clothes and they run in there frantically trying to put a stop to all this, crying out, verse 15, saying, men, why are you doing these things? Now, remember that back in chapter 13, Paul preached his first sermon and he used all of these Old Testament illustrations because he was speaking to people who were of an Old Testament background. And so he was telling them about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph because that's the God that those people were familiar with. Now, also, <clears throat> he used the Old Testament to show how the sacrificial system was used, you know, in these prescribed sacrifices that God had ordained to cover sin. Now, these sacrifices that are about to take place here have nothing to do with that. These offerings were of a complete different nature. These offerings to false gods are to receive something from the false god. So they're going to they're gonna give this oxen with, with garland around its neck, and they're going to sacrifice this animal in order to receive what they want from the God whom they're sacrificing to. I just want you to see how utterly different this is than Old Testament 
sacrifices offered to Yahweh, God of the Bible. This is to gain things. So in this culture, if you wanted fertility, then you would sacrifice to the God of fertility. If you wanted your crops to grow, you would, you would give to the, offer to the God of, of the weather or the crops or the God of whatever it was. You know, if, if you had sickness, you would go to that God. So there was all these pantheon of gods for all sorts of different things, prosperity, protection, you name it, they had a God for it. And you would go to that particular God and give to that God to receive a very particular thing. And here's the whole point. Who's the one that determined which God was over which thing? They did. The people that lived there. And who determined what you give that God and what you would get in return? They did. You see the problem here? Like if they were really gods, you wouldn't be telling the God what he's going to give you. The God's going to give you whatever the God wants to give you if it's really a God. So anytime people are dictating what God's going to do, you've got a major, major problem. So there's no such thing as sacrifices to the real God for the purpose of services in return. There's no such thing. That would be what the Bible calls mocking God. And we know the Bible says that God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. So... If we think about our own lives, we know that we all have or have had in the past things in our life that we believe will give us the happiness we desire. And that's what's going on here. They're, they're just like us. They're just a normal group of people who have needs. And so all people in all places and all situations have needs. And they're going to figure out a way to try to resolve or meet the needs that they have. There's no such thing as a people anywhere and never has been who just ignore the fact that they have needs. People are industrious. They're going to figure out a way to meet the needs that they think need to be met in the way in which they think it ought to be met. And because God's wired us that way. You see, the Bible teaches that we were created for joy, but not just any joy. A specific joy that's only found in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our heart wants to be joyful. Our heart wants to be, you know, satisfied. And we, we're born in the image of God. Therefore, we have desires for things. And so those desires will oftentimes, if we're placing those desires in the wrong things, then we find ourselves in situations that look just like this. This may seem like it's so foreign to us that these people wanting to worship these false gods, but in reality, it's just like the culture in which we live in today. So we need to understand that anything that you and I set our hope in, anything that we uh, place our trust in that's above Jesus, uh, that will give us the joy that our heart is longing for, is a false god. It's a false God, and it's never going to satisfy, ever. And we live in a culture where millions upon millions of people sacrifice, not bulls or oxen, but sacrifice their time, their energy, their families, their emotions upon the altar of their God. And it happens all the time. Hoping for what? That they're going to receive what they're longing for in response. Because nobody is doing it for nothing. They think, we think that it's going to give us, yield us what we, what we want. So we don't need to read this text and think, well, that would never happen today. No, it is happening today. In fact, in some of our lives in this room, it's happening right now. And maybe we're not even aware of it. So here's what we should do. We should first, we should say, well, what does false worship look like today? That would be a very wise spent few moments of a conversation. What does it look like today? So if you have your listening guide, I'm going to give you some things to help us sort this out. False worship today. Number one, first thing we need to understand is that God made us to crave joy in Him through Jesus. 
to crave joy in Him through Jesus. So we're made that way. So we need to understand what it is we need to be, you know, sort of looking out for. How all this sort of idolatry, as the Bible calls it, works. Because if I start talking about idolatry, a lot of you just check out because you think, well, that's like carving some little weird totem pole and then worshiping that thing. And we don't do that. No, no, idolatry is much broader than that. So you see, God, being the loving God that He is, has always provided access to what we need most, hasn't He? He always has. See, in the, we know that God, He created us for this joy, but He also paid the ultimate price in His Son to make provision that we would be able to experience this joy, right? Psalm 1611, that your right hand is fullness of joy pleasure forevermore so we would experience this through the Lord Jesus but even in the Old Testament what we have is God who gives a sacrificial system why for the covering of sin why so that the people could have fellowship with him and he and they and then they built a tabernacle that God might dwell among them and the whole point of every listen there's a group of people that ultimately became God's people, but they weren't a people. They were just enslaved in Egypt, and God, they weren't doing anything. God showed up and scooped them up and made himself known to them. He's the one that did all of that. He was the one that allowed them to be able to experience the joy that they were created to know. And all through the Old Testament, we see God working and striving and operating so that his people could experience what he made them to long for. He's a good father. And so we should be so thankful as we come today as new covenant people able to just receive the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. So God made us to crave joy. Number two, because of sin, our hearts are prone to seek joy in other things. We're all prone to seek joy in other things. All of us. And so we can all think back to a time before we knew Christ as Savior and how we were pursuing wrong things. And why were we doing that? Just to do it? No, we were doing it because we thought it would make us happy. We thought it would fulfill us. So what happens is rather than submit to God and His Word, we're prone to take a shortcut. You know, we think, well, I don't know. I, you know, I'm not sure about that. I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how fun that's going to be. I'm not sure what all that's going to attempt. So we just make a shortcut up. We just come up with our own way that we're going to get from where we are to where we want to be. And so we create this way. It's, it's always a way that we uh, devise, thinking it's going to be easier. And we think it's going to be fun and more fulfilling. That's so crazy. And so we make up this shortcut to take us to joy. Now, the Bible says that the heavens are astonished by this. That the heavens are completely baffled at the reality that God's creation in His own image would forsake this clear and gracious and good path that God's made straight for us to follow him. Here's how the Bible says it in Jeremiah chapter 2. This will come up on the screen. God says, be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So what the Bible says is that what we've done is we have chosen to forsake this fountain of living water. Instead, we've taken a shovel and decided we're going to dig our own hole in the ground, make our own cistern that's going to hold what we want, our water, and we're going we're to fill that thing with water, and we're going to do it our own way, and we're not going to take this water that's right here available to us. And so God is saying to the heavens, you should, uh, you should be appalled by this. That my people have looked at me and thought, hmm. See, here's this fountain. 
of, of water. It's self-replenishing. It's life-giving water. It's clean. It's free-flowing. It's never-ending. It just, it just comes up out of the ground. It's endlessly providing all that you want. And God's saying, my people have said, I don't want that. I want to go away from that. I want to go and dig my own well and fill it with my own water. Now, think about how that would work. See, the Bible says that that cistern that we dig, it leaks out. Of course it does. The ground just, so it's a never-ending, you're working forever. When, when, you, when you choose your own path, it's a, you're exhausted. Because first of all, you have to dig the, the cistern, but that's only the beginning. Then how does the water get in there? I mean, you hope that it just rains like crazy, but that never seems to work out. And so you've got to go get water and bring water and fill it up. And get water and bring water and fill it up. Meanwhile, it's always slowly seeping out. And so it's a never-ending. There's nothing more exhausting than idolatry. There's nothing more exhausting than, than serving a false god. You're working, 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 working. Meanwhile, over here is this free-flowing spring that you can just, you don't, you, it's just there. It's just provided for you. No, there's, you don't have to do anything. It's just there. All you have to do is partake of it. And you would think no one would do that. And yet God says you, you should be astonished, heavens. Because here's ex exactly what my people have done. Working in their own strength. It's the epitome of idolatry. According to their own way to get what they think will satisfy and so in the end, it's just work, 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 work. You're always empty, never satisfied, always striving. It's never enough. Now, we're going to respond some way to this. See, look at number three. Because we don't all serve the same idol. Our idol of choice is determined by our nature and our nurture. What I want you to do is I want you to investigate what you are prone to worship based on the questions on the back of your handout today. And so I've given you some tools to be able to do that. But you need to understand the first step and understand that you've got to understand yourself. You've got to understand who you are. Because what is going to lead you to your, your idol, what you're prone to serve, is based on your nature and your nurture. So your nature, that's how you're put together. That's your personality that God gave you. That's your giftedness that God gave you. And we're all different, okay? So we don't all have the same personality. We don't all have the same giftedness. God made us that way. That's our nature. Then we have our nurture which is our experiences, and our, those experiences that you've experienced have shaped how you sort of operate in the nature that God gave you. Now, I don't know anything about most of you, but I know a lot of things about me. I know how this works in my life. I know the things that I'm drawn to. I know the things that I lean towards. And so maybe for you, it's, uh, you're a control freak and you want to control everything. And so you always lean into control. Or maybe you lean into comfort and you tend to gravitate towards idolatry based around comfort. Or maybe it's pleasing people. You care more than anything else what people think about you and you want them to be happy with you all the time. And so you're going to be drawn to idolatry around pleasing people. Or maybe... It's for you success. You want to be successful. You want to be seen as successful or important. So you are drawn to those sorts of idolatrous false gods. And that's determined by your nature and your nurture. The things you've experienced. The successes maybe you had growing up or the failures that you were subjected to. And just the, the way that environment impacted you and some of you were, grew up in, a, in an environment of, of, of great acceptance, and some of you were, grew up in an environment of great rejection. And that's been a very pivotal part of your development. And all this works together to determine what we gravitate towards. Now, you know, 
I know that I'm put together a certain way. And I know that I will try to be in a lane where I can organize and accomplish things. I like to organize teams around tasks and accomplish things. I like to lead things. I like to, I like to, to cast vision about things. I like to, and, and that's, what I, that's where I flourish. But why am I like that? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I went through a lot of traumatic things in my life early on at a very young age that I had no control over. And because I went through those things, they shaped me. And so now if you put me in a, in a room full of people and there's someone in that room that's leading, I'm fine. But if you put me in a room full of people and it's chaos and nobody's leading, Tony gets antsy quick. Because that's how I'm put together. And, and if, if we're just lollygagging around and nothing's getting done, I'm going to take charge of the situation. And some of you are that way. And here's, what, here's what, what a lot of you have learned just based on the way that God's used you to serve in His kingdom. You've taken children into your family that have been traumatized. And you've noticed certain things about them. One of them is, is that they want to know. They want to know what time it is. They want to know where we're going. They want to know what the schedule is. They want to know the plan. Do you know why that is? Because they've been traumatized by things beyond their control. And so one of the ways that we nurture them is by answering all their questions and putting their minds at ease and saying it's going to be okay. We're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. And you tell them in advance what's expected of them and you, you, you give them the routine. Whereas my two children that I raised, when I said get in the car, they just got in the car. They didn't even care what time it is. They didn't even care where we were going. They didn't care, you know, they didn't care about anything. They didn't have any reason to. So what I'm telling you is, is that you need to understand your nature and your nurture and understand how that shapes you and it will make you, it will, it will lead you to where you're prone to seek after, make up your own false God to worship. And so for the 25 years I've been a Christian, it's just been sort of decompressing all of those things within me and changing. And when I look back at when I first got saved and I, and I think about how I am now and I realize how completely different I am and how God has just unraveled just thousands upon thousands of layers of things that, about me by His grace and His mercy and through His Spirit. But you should understand you, how you're put together. Nature, nurture. All right, number four. We'll worship, we'll give our worship to an idol with either religion or rebellion. So our false worship, our, our idolatry, this, this thing that we seek after that we think is going to make us happy, we're going to seek after it and we're going to worship this thing through one of these two channels. It's going to be either religion or rebellion, those two things. So there's joy that we crave. We think we figured out how we're, we, we're going to achieve that joy. And so, you see, sometimes idolatry is just, it's just blatantly rebellious. It's just right out there in your face. And sometimes it's concealed and harder to root out. And the majority of the idolatry in this room is in the religious category. And it's oftentimes so much harder to distinguish and to discern and to get out of your life. You see, sometimes people just say, I don't care what God says. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do things my way. 
You see, those of you that know my story know that before I became a Christian, I was a very outspoken atheist. And so before, I, before God saved me, I would tell you in a New York second, I don't give a care what you think or what you say. I'm not listening to you. I'm doing what I want to do the way I want to do it. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. See, there's people out in the world that way. But most of the idolatry in a setting like this is very different. It's a religious worship. It's where the Bible says, I'll read this. You can write down on, on the side of uh, Isaiah 29, 13. Okay? Write that down. Here's what the Bible says. Therefore, the Lord says, inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me. See how religious they are? They're in church. They're singing. They're, on, they're saying all the right things. They got Christian t-shirts. They're, they're, they look like the, the real McCoy on the outside, but their hearts are far from him. And look at what the Bible goes on to say. And their, their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. And then Jesus, in the book of Matthew, comes back and says the same thing. They honor me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Which seems strange. Why are they honoring him with their mouth and their hearts are far from me? It's idolatry. It's, but it's religious idolatry. So I think that's why we need to talk about this because it's, it's, it's hard to, to find sometimes. See, think about common false gods like money. There's people who, who think money and the accumulation of it is going to lead to power and control and respect. And they think it's going to give them what they want. It's going to give them joy. And so they serve whatever it is, however they go about it, to, to accumulate money. Now, a, a rebellious person is going to say, well, I'm going to do whatever i got to do to make as much money as I can make. I'm going to spend it the way I want to spend it. I'm going to live the way I want to live, and that's what I'm going to do. But that's not how the re religious idolater would, would talk about money at all. They're going to do the same thing. They're going to sacrifice their time. They're going to sacrifice their families and oftentimes their sanity on the altar of pursuing money, just like the rebellious person. But they're going to say, well, I'm going to be a good steward of my money. So that I have plenty in savings. So that I feel secure about myself. But in reality, see it sounds very responsible. It sounds very spiritual. But see, in reality, their trust is in their wealth. And the way you know that is, is because they, they, they check their their, their stock market account, or they're looking at their 401k every single day. They have apps on their phone to keep up with it all the time. And they're always doing it. And, and they think about that way more than they think about God. Most of the time, they don't, they're not reading their Bible. They're not walking in the power of the Spirit. But they're finding their, their, their comfort and their security in what they have. And it's their God. But they look like very religious people on the outside. Their security is in their savings, not their Savior. Amen. You know that's going on in this room. You know it is. What about romance or acceptance or, you know, just love? The, the, the worship of love. If I get this love and the affection of the person that I want, I, then it's going to make me feel whole. It's going to make me feel I'm going to be secure and complete in that. I'll be filled with joy. So the rebellious person just says, well, I'm just going to live any way I want, do anything I want to. I don't really care what you think. Who, I mean, who says this is wrong or that's right? I'm just going to make up my own way. I'm just going to live any way I want to. But the religious person, they, they approach it from a completely different standpoint. You know what the religious person does? They follow all the rules. They follow all the rules perfectly. They do everything according to the way it's laid out and supposed to be. And they look like from the outside, wow, these are some really amazing spiritual people. Look at how devoted they are to the, the, the process of doing things the correct way. But in their heart, 
they do that so that God will then be compelled to give them what they want. You see, all of their striving to follow the rules is only so that they can say, God, now I've done everything you asked me to do. Now you give me what I want. That's idolatry. Amen. Don't be so freaked out looking at me like that. You're all like, ah. come on. Anytime you're trying to manipulate God into giving you what you want. So, what, what is the, so why should someone be obedient to the commands of Scripture? So that God will give them what they want? Or because God is God and what else would you do? Right? There's a big difference. That's idolatry. It's religious idolatry. And on the outside it looks Really, really good. But it's false worship. It has this religious tone to it. See, the, the rebellious person is running from God. But the religious person is trying to use God. And that's what you need to guard your heart against, is how might I be trying to use God? Sometimes I hear stories in my conversations with some of you about, you know, just the things that are going on in your life and the, uh, through the spiritual things that you're doing. And I worry about you and I start to pray for you because I hear the way you speak and you say things that cause me pause. Like you're, you're wanting God to do something and... The way that you say it is, makes me a little uneasy because it's void of the understanding that you don't know what you need. See, that's the problem. The problem is that when me and you have determined what we need and how something should go, that is a problem. Because you don't know. You don't know what you need. I don't know what you need, and I don't know what I need. All I know is what the Bible says we need. And so anything outside of what the Bible says we need, we ought to be scared of that. We ought to back away from that. So many illustrations. Religious people who take good gifts and make them idols, make their children or their spouse an idol. It looks good. It looks like you're God-fearing people on the outside, and you're so devoted to your family. And people would say, oh, man, they're so devoted to their family. But look closely. Look closely. And what you'll find is that this devotion is such that they'll drop anything to make sure that they're a part of every single thing that goes on in their kids' lives. They're always present. They're always a part of it. They drop everything. They're, always, they're over the top involved in everything. But at the expense of what? And here's the, here's the key right here. Anytime your family stops and starts based on something other than God, you got a problem. You see, if your sports schedule determines your church attendance, you got a problem. That's idolatry. Hold on, I'm not done. What, what, what about, what about, I mean, just start writing the hate mail. What about, what about the family who, when their child has a big project due at school, they stay home to get their homework done? Boy, it looks so responsible on the outside, doesn't it? What matters most to you? It's idolatry. What you truly believe is that your children's education is going to lead them to happiness, and you're wrong. There's no level of education. There's no amount of... You're wrong. You're wrong. The only thing that will ever satisfy your child's heart is Jesus. 
And what we want to have is a family that pivots around Jesus. Now you can have, I want you to be involved in things and I want your kids to excel in school and I want all the, but I want everything to pivot around Jesus because that's what Jesus wants. And when you deviate from that, it is idolatry. And there's a lot of religious idolatry around. You just look closely, you'll see it. What's running your life? What determines your mood up or down? What determines what you do, where you go, how you do it? What does it? You see, it's so easy to look and say, boy, look at these backwards weirdos trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes. Mm -hmm. And here we are, thousands of years later. Boy, we look so dignified and culturized and yet the same idolatry is running like a river right through the midst of people professing faith in God. Verse 15. So they respond. They say, why are you doing these things? And here's what Paul says. Well, we're men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the seas, and all things in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did, not, that he did good. He gave us rain from heavens and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Now, remember I said, look at how Paul shifts culture. Do these people know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No. So what does Paul do? He speaks to them the gospel in accordance to what they know. And what does he use? Creation. He says, well, look around you. Look at, look at what, what, do you think it just rains when it needs to rain? Do you think food just comes up out of the ground? I mean, how do you think all of this stuff works together? He tells them about the God of creation. And what do we know from Scripture about the God of creation? Well, here's what we know. Romans chapter 1 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress, what do they suppress? Now, can you suppress something that you don't know? Mm -mm. You, have to, you have to know something to suppress it, right? Yes, they suppress the truth. All people have, the, they suppress the truth that's right there because what may be known of God is manifest. It's evident. How is it evident? In them, for God has shown it to them. Now, how has God shown it to them? All men right there in front of them. The next verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Well, there they are. All the attributes of God being understood by the things that are made. You know what things are made? Created things. All that's created gives witness to the invisible attributes of God. Even his eternal power and Godhead. So that they're without what? And Paul goes straight in. Because he knows that no matter how remote the people, no matter how distant they are, no matter how unheard of, guess what happens when I go to some far-out village in Brazil that's never heard about Jesus, never seen a white-skinned person, doesn't even, doesn't, can't imagine that I'm... They're looking at me like I'm Zeus or Hermes. Trust me, when I walk in the thing, they're looking up going, what is happening here? Do you think I go in there and start all this theological jargon? First of all, I don't even have a Bible with me. Second of all, because if I have a Bible, that's going to freak them out because there's no one there that knows how to read or even seen a printed book. And I talk to them about the God of creation. And I point to the trees and the fruit. And I say, how do you think all of this happened around you? Because that's the context that they live in. So, his, so, so what does this mean? You make invisible attributes about God visible through creative things. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, which would be serving an idol, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So here's the principle. God makes Himself known through creation through created things. Through creation, through created things. 
Now, if God makes himself known through creation and through created things, well then, what does that say about us? We're created, so God must make himself known through us because we're created too. So it's not just the creation around us, but it's us too. And not only that, we're the only thing in creation that's created in the image of God. Everything else is just created by God. So we have even a heightened purpose within the created order. And Paul's pleading with them as they're worshiping their false gods and their idols. Just like he would plead with us today, whether it be money or sex or power or control or whatever it is. Why would you worship a created thing? Why would you do that? He's saying, don't worship me. And he tells them about the God who created everything. What well, you sh- Never, never should you worship a created thing. You should always worship the creator. So Paul says, we're just like you. Why in the world would you turn from a fountain of living water and dig your own hole in the ground? It's insanity. Look at verse 18. And with these sayings, they could scarcely... Restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. It meant that they prevented them from carrying out these sacrifices, but barely. I mean, they were zealous, man. They, they had these bulls and this garland. They're ready to go. We're about to have us a big old festival here. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. You know, so the ones that they left behind, they followed them there and started up some more trouble persuading the multitudes. And so they stoned Paul and they drag him out of the city, supposing him dead. So this isn't like Paul moved to Colorado. Some of y'all just write that down. It'll make sense to you tomorrow. Wow. He gets pelted with rocks. Now just hold on. We're almost done. I want you to just imagine how gruesome that sight would be. People just pelting you with rocks until you're so disfigured that you are supposed to be dead. Verse 20. However, when the disciples gathered around him, There he is laying there, probably in a pool of his own blood. He rose up, and where did he go? Into the city. Imagine what that looked like. I mean, there's the first zombie film right there. Paul, after getting stone thinking he's dead he comes walking back i mean just think of what he looked like as he's walking into town like it's get get out of his way man run so this god who makes himself now let's remember where we're at now god makes himself known through creation right it's what we know we're created Paul, they think is dead. He rises up. That was no doubt miraculous. Goes right back into the city. Hmm. So God doesn't only make himself known through the trees and the rain and the harvest and the creation around, but Paul comes walking back in. What is that telling those people about the God whom he serves? About the worth of that God. About the value of knowing that God. About, the, about how serious Paul takes being an ambassador of that God. What is the message? So if me and you are created, God means something through me. God means something through me. I want you to write me because it's you. He means something. 
See, because all the way back to the nature that he knit together in your mother's womb, the way that he uniquely formed you and created you, and he laid out the days for you before there were any of them, according to Psalm 139, when all that was going down, you think he just did that because he was bored? Or because he had a purpose, because he had a plan. And we love to say God's got a purpose for your life, but nobody ever seems to know what the purpose is. He means something through you. He's not just revealing himself to the world through the creation. He's revealing himself to the world through you. Your life is communicating something about God. Your conduct, your priorities, the things that matter to you, the way that you operate and utilize your resources and your time, and the thing, all of the, your affections, they're communicating to the world around you something about God. But it's not always a good thing, is it? Because some of us in here are worshiping idols very religiously and effectively. And we've often wondered, God, why don't you use me more? How come, how come I don't lead anybody to Christ? How come people don't walk up to me and start asking me questions about my faith? How come... For so long, I felt so marginalized. You see, either you're going to glorify God one way or another. And either it's going to be because the way you live causes people to say, Wow. I've never seen anybody live like that. I'm, I'm curious about that. You're so grace-filled. You're so, how do you face such horrific situations and remain so calm and steadfast and, and confident? How do, you, how do you have such peace? And so you glorify God because people see the worth of God in you like they saw in Paul. Or... You glorify God by showing people what God is not like. Your life is a declaration of what God isn't. Because God isn't condemning. God isn't judgmental. God isn't greedy. God isn't whiny and complainy. God isn't always anxious and fretful and erratic and all over the place and hot and cold and up and down. And one minute you're zealous and then the next minute you know, you, you know the FBI can't find you. And you're an illustration of what God's not. You find your hope in your job. You find your security in your bank account. The truth of the matter is your whole life pivots around people you love and you disguise it as religiosity, but it's really idolatry. You want more than anything else, not for God to love you and accept you. You want your kids to love you and accept you. You want your spouse to love you and accept you. That's not how God is. You do a lot of religious things, but you never serve anybody else. You never forego and personally sacrifice just for the blessing of someone that maybe you don't even know. That's not how God is. At all. If Jesus came to this church and he was here and he sat always in the place you're sitting right now, would he do the things you do? You think Jesus would come in here and go out every, every Sunday and not serve anybody? 
Do you think Jesus would come in and out of here every Sunday and just go right back to the way he was living? Or do you think that when Jesus came into church, what would happen in here would would fill his cup to overflowing so that he would then go back out and continue the mission for what he knows is most important? Wouldn't he be more like Paul, who being, being stoned to death, gets up and goes right back in? He didn't say, I mean, it would have been perfectly acceptable to just say, well, man, I'm just going to take a week off. Man, i got to heal up. Don't you notice in the text what it says? And the very next day, he went to Derby. He didn't take a single day off. The very next day, he drug his zombie-looking tail. 30 miles he walked to get the Derby. 30 miles on foot. All those wounds exposed. All those bones aching and broken. And he went 30 miles to tell people about Jesus in the next town. we got to ask ourselves some questions, folks. What is my life telling the world about God? What is my life telling the world about God? Because God reveals Himself through created things. And He means something by me or you.